Well, this morning we're looking at uh, Matthew uh, chapter 27 and verses 1 to 26. So Matthew 27, verses 1 to 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bore with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them uh, for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him uh, today in a dream. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd uh, to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Uh, How do you respond uh, when you're found guilty? Now, when someone accuses you of something, what do you do? Do you try to justify your actions? Do you play it over in your mind, uh, seeking to prove your innocence and win? Do you get angry? And perhaps you go and tell someone else how badly you've been treated. Or what about if it's your own conscience that's accusing you? Are you crushed? Uh, Do you despair? 
And perhaps you run to distraction, uh, numbing yourself with Netflix. In our passage today, uh, we see how God responds to accusation. And if we get what's going on, uh, we'll see how his response is wonderfully freeing for us. So first we're going to look at, at what happened, try and understand what's happening in the passage. And secondly, we're going to think about what that means uh, for us. And we pick up the story uh, at verse 1, uh, when morning came. It's the morning after Jesus' trial before the religious court. And as we saw last week, uh, he was found guilty of blasphemy, of claiming to be the Son of God, and he was sentenced to death. Our time is of the essence here. Um, the religious leaders, they, they know they need to put him to death uh, before the Sabbath begins. Uh, that evening. Uh, but while a, a religious court can sentence a man to death, it has no power to actually execute that sentence, to actually put him to death. Uh, the jurisdiction of that court is limited to religious matters. And so, verse 2 they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate the governor, the man who did have the power to put Christ to death. Yeah, but before we enter the Roman courtroom, Matthew first takes us to the temple and to an encounter between Judas and the chief priests. And so look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The fact that Judas changes his mind when he hears that Jesus is going to be put to death suggests that that is not what he expected to happen. He wanted Jesus stopped. He wanted him maybe to be taken down a few pegs. But he certainly didn't want him to be killed. Now, Christ's sentence produces this moment of clarity for him. Uh, there in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He realizes that Jesus is innocent after all, and but by, that by betraying him, he has played a part in an innocent man being put to death. And Judas understands the severity of what he has done, what he set in train, and so he confesses his sin to the priests and he attempts to hand back the 30 pieces of silver to those who gave it to him in the first place. I wonder what you think are the, the most terrifying words in the world, world you could hear. Uh, you have cancer. Uh, you're being made redundant. We're at war. I'd suggest that, that far more terrifying is the response of the chief priests and the elders to Judas when they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, Judas is grieved, remorseful. He's crushed by the reality of his sin. Yet he's met not with grace and compassion, but with a shrug of the shoulders. Can't help you. You handle it. Now, to speak these words to a man in Judas's position uh, is callous, it's heartless, especially as they are uh, the chief priests and the elders are as guilty of the betrayal of innocent blood as he is. But Judas is nothing to them. He's just a pawn. He's, he's a means to an end. And now that end has been achieved, they have no further interest in him. 
It just shows us, doesn't it, how utterly corrupt these religious leaders are. They are the shepherds of Israel, but they care not one bit for their flock. They made no attempt to, to listen or to, to help Judas. And no attempt to point Judas to the promised Messiah. No attempt to explain that the temple that they are standing in and the sacrificial system that functions within it proclaims that sin can be atoned for. They are as guilty as Judas, yet their only interest is to make sure that Judas alone bears the guilt of the deed, that Christ's blood is on him and not them. And so verse 5, Judas picks up the money and he throws it right into the heart of the temple in disgust and despair. And we see the sad but logical end of being told, see to it yourself. Because Judas departs and he hangs himself. Now the guilt and the shame of what he has done to Christ are completely overwhelming. He has been met with a stone wall uh, by the ones who could and should have helped. He thinks he has nowhere else to go, nowhere to appeal for mercy. He thinks his only option is to handle it himself, to face God's judgment and to bear the consequences of his sin. And so he passes a death sentence on himself. Now, this is a tragic ending, isn't it? It's a tragic ending, but not really to the chief priests and the elders. And we see their priorities kind of set out for us in verses 6 to 10. They want to find a way for the money they paid to Judas to betray Christ to be used without making them unclean. They are perfectly happy with an outcome where Judas dies bearing the guilt of Christ's betrayal. In their eyes, he dies so that they don't have to and they can keep their hands clean and maintain their innocence. Well, now uh, Matthew does uh, take us into the political courtroom. Uh, Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Now, Pilate's question uh, reveals uh, for us that the charge has now shifted. So even in the few hours since his appearance before the chief priests and the elders, it's no longer about blasphemy because that's a religious matter. It's not political and therefore it's not a matter for Rome. Instead, the claim is that Christ is a rebel, that he's setting himself up in opposition to Caesar. And that this is, a political, uh, this is a political matter that Rome is very concerned about because it contains the possibility of a threat to their rule. Now, if I uh, told you that you were going to meet uh, a famous footballer, uh, you would probably have a very clear idea of what they would look like. So I think you would think they'd probably be young, tall, athletic, probably wearing a tracksuit uh, of their club. So how would you feel then if uh, an 80-year-old man walked in through the door? You'd struggle to reconcile, wouldn't you, the, the promise of seeing a famous footballer and the man standing in front of you. You'd be a bit bemused by it, wouldn't you? And I think that's how we need to uh, understand uh, what's going on with Pilate's question. 
There's bemusement in his voice. Are you the king of the Jews? Really? And Jesus doesn't project power. Jesus doesn't look like much of a threat to Rome. And so Jesus' response means sort of half yes, half no. It's not a denial. He is the king of the Jews. But he's not a king in the way that Pilate thinks. And at this point, the chief priests and the elders, uh, their fury is unleashed. They let their accusations fly, don't they? They're in verse 12. But they're met with silence. Jesus just says nothing. His mouth remains closed. And we need to understand how difficult it must be for someone to remain silent in the face of horrendous accusations that are categorically not true. And just think back to the beginning and, and how you respond to accusations. It's human instinct, isn't it, to defend and absolve, to fight for our own innocence. Jesus makes no attempt to defend himself. Attack after attack after attack come in and they're just met with silence. Jesus is just passive throughout. He lets the attacks come. He doesn't dignify them with a response. And it's a performance that leaves Pilate amazed there in verse 14. Now, this is not normal behavior. Pilate is deeply impressed by what he sees. Christ's silence uh, testifies far more effectively to his innocence than words ever could. And it's certainly convincing to Pilate. And this should be a straightforward case, shouldn't it? Especially as, as Pilate is perceptive enough to understand that the chief priests and the rulers are not operating here out of a sense of, of justice or righteousness, but out of rivalry. And he also uh, gets this clear warning, doesn't he, from his wife in verse 19, that Jesus is a righteous man and he should have nothing to do with him. You know, Pilate has all the information that he needs to set Jesus free. His job is to uphold the laws of the land, which particularly means not condemning an innocent man. He doesn't want Christ's blood on his hands, but nor does he want to lose the favour of the Jewish leaders and people. In verse 15, Now at, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Pilate realizes that this Passover custom presents him with an opportunity, a way for him to pass the responsibility for the decision onto the people. Now, uh, Mark tells us in his gospel account that, that Barabbas is being held for insurrection. So he is an actual revolutionary. He's being held because he has risen up against Rome. Now, our English text here, it, it hides the fact that Barabbas is actually Jesus Barabbas, which means Jesus, son of the father. So Pilate's question in verse 17 is, therefore, which Jesus, son of the father, do you want? Which king or Messiah do you want? A strong man, a man of action or a weak man, a man of silence? And it's very possible that, that Pilate thinks the people will choose Jesus Christ. But the chief priests and the elders, they're there. Well, they're working the crowd uh, to get what they want. And each time Pilate goes to them, 
uh, the situation escalates until in verse 24, the penny drops. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate realizes he has lost control. He's not been able to achieve what he hoped. The release of the innocent Jesus with the crowd taking responsibility. Instead, they've called louder and louder for his death. And so Pilate dips his hands in a bowl of water and he utters exactly the same thing the chief priests say to Judas. See to it yourselves. What happens now is not my responsibility. It's nothing to do with me. The death of this innocent man is on you. You bear the guilt. You face the judgment for this, not me. And we see, don't we, that the chief priests, the elders and Pilate, are totally united in their determination not to have Christ's blood on their hands. They do not want to be found guilty of this sin. They want to be innocent. They want to have clean hands. And so they find a way to shift the blame and the responsibility, firstly to Judas and then to the people. Judas and the people are their sacrificial lambs, their guilt offering for sin. They are the ones to whom the chief priests and Pilate transfer all their guilt for the condemnation of an innocent man so they can be clean. And perhaps you recognize that instinct. It's the same instinct in all of us. And we want to be innocent. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want to be handed over to face judgment for our sins. We just instinctively know, don't we, that that is a terrible thing. Which is why we seek to shift the blame. We'll do anything to be clean. Even if that means someone else having to suffer the consequences of our actions. And in that sense, we're just following after our first father, Adam. Who, after eating the fruit sought to shift the blame to Eve, to make her bear the responsibility and the guilt for the sin, so he didn't have to. Ultimately, sinful hearts always act in self-preservation. Instead of looking outward, putting the needs of others first, sin has left us curved in on ourselves, putting ourselves first, me before you. But the actions of the the chief priests and Pilate show us just how ugly this approach is. Everything, anything, anyone uh, is sacrificed at the altar of self-preservation. People become disposable. Laws become breakable. uh, Truth becomes worthless. Justice is disregarded. And when we act in self-preservation, nothing is really sacred. Any principle can be violated and discarded if necessary. We happily manipulate and we use and we exploit others to protect ourselves. All that matters is we find a way for someone else to be blamed so that we can keep our hands clean. And we shift the blame in all sorts of ways to avoid responsibility for our sin, don't we? It's so easy when a, a project at work hits difficulties to just point the finger at another person or another team, even when we know we could have done more to improve the situation. And we say, if my spouse met my needs more, I would be a better husband or wife. Or we say, I'm grumpy because my children are running me ragged. 
But we need to understand that shifting blame like this doesn't work. This is as effective as a pilot washing his hands. Water can't wash away guilt. Which is why we need to look to Christ and his behavior and what happens to him. And the first thing we need to note is that when Christ stands before Pilate, we see God in the dock. God himself is on trial. He is innocent. He has every right to defend himself, and yet he remains silent in front of his accusers. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't protest. It's because he's doing exactly what he needs to do to rescue his people. God stands in the dock and remains silent for our sake. Now, he is uh, the living, breathing fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verses 6 to 7. We say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Just as his silence proclaims his innocence, so it also proclaims how precious we are to him, how much he loves us and what he is willing to do for us. He remains silent so that he can be led to the slaughter, so that he can become the sacrificial lamb that we need. Even though he's innocent, he keeps his mouth shut so that he can be found guilty and face the condemnation that our sin deserves, and so his innocence can be transferred to us. Now we need to be honest that when we think about judgment and our hearts begin to race, God is the one whose accusation we fear. Now, even if we don't realize it, all of our fear of judgment is deep down a fear of his judgment, his accusation. Yet here he is, the one who sits on the throne of heaven, the one for whom the angels cover their eyes and sing, holy, 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 the one who is burningly pure, standing in the dock for us, willingly remaining silent so that he might receive the guilty sentence instead of us. So your conscience isn't helped by a, a denial of your guilt or God's holiness and therefore judgment. And nor can it be healed by your good works balancing it out. But when we see the love of a holy God who is willing to put himself in the dock and receive in his own flesh, though innocent, those accusations, then all the sting has been drawn. Now, children, it's like a bee. It can only sting once. And then it can't harm anymore. We need not fear judgment because we already know what the verdict will be. Christ, by his silence, is found guilty in an earthly courtroom so that we will be found not guilty of all charges in a heavenly one. And we see this played out in verse uh, 26, don't we? Let's look at this. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The guilty Jesus Barabbas walks free. The innocent Jesus Christ is handed over to be put to death, all because Christ keeps his lips sealed. 
And it's completely upside down, isn't it? As an innocent man, Jesus is the one who should be released. And Barabbas is the one who should be sent to be scourged and taken off to be crucified. The wrong man walks free. But that's the point. Now, like Barabbas, we are the guilty party. We deserve to be scourged. We deserve to be crucified. But like Barabbas, we walk away as free men and women because Christ is found guilty and condemned in our place. Not for his own sin, but for ours. The chief priests and the elders do everything that they can to pass the buck, to transfer their guilt to someone else. Christ instead does everything he can so that all of our guilt can be transferred to him. He can be condemned and his innocence can be transferred to us. That's why we shouldn't hesitate in in bringing our guilt and our shame to Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve. Not to make us bear our guilt and shame, but to take it away from us for good by being found guilty for us. And that's why we never need to try and shift the blame for our sin to someone else. Christ has taken our guilt and shame with him to the cross. It's not hanging over us. And that's really good news for our relationships at home, at work, at church, anywhere. Because it means that we can actually own up to our sin and take responsibility for it and face the earthly consequences because we know the heavenly consequences are completely dealt with by Christ. Because of him, we know the verdict is not guilty. We know we are innocent in God's eyes. And that's all that matters. But that's also why we don't need to bear the guilt and the shame of our sin ourselves. In verse 5, Judas took his own life because he found the, the guilt that he felt was too great a burden to bear. And he thought there was nowhere else to turn. The tragedy is there was somewhere to go. There was someone to whom he could have turned. He needed the very one that he betrayed. Christ's arms are open. If he had gone to him in repentance, he would have found forgiveness. And if that's true for Judas, how much more true is that for us? Yes, we are guilty of sin. Yes, that sin is great. Yes, it deserves judgment. But that is precisely why Christ remained silent and was condemned. So he, being found guilty, could face the judgment we deserve and be crushed under the weight of our sin, not us. So we walk free. Now let's give thanks to God then for his mercy and grace to us in Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that because of our sin, we are guilty and we deserve judgment. Yet we thank you that because of his great love for us, Christ, though he was innocent, was willing to stand in the dock, remain silent and be found guilty for us so that we who are guilty might be found innocent and walk free. Amen.